0: Alright, so Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14, it says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The confession we're holding fast to in Hebrews is that Jesus' finished work is sufficient. It's a grace message. We're trying to enter rest. That's what Hebrews 3 and 4 is about. Enter into the rest of God. What does that mean? It means... He completed all the work, we get all the benefit. So that's your confession. Jesus has completed the work, I get the benefit. It says, since then we have a great high priest. Well, when was high priest even mentioned about Jesus? Chapter 2, verse 17. So remember, chapter 2 was about Jesus. You have to think about, Hebrews is written as a letter. So it's, these aren't just subjects being thrown out there on a dartboard. All right. So he says, since then we have a great high priest. Well, how do you know you have a great high priest? Well, in chapter 2 he said... Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So we have a God who became like us to be our brother. We have a brother named Jesus. So as a brother, he had to be like us in every respect so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So Jesus had to be fully man to be fully tempted so that he could be fully high priest. We talked about this contract. Law was a contract that existed between fallen people and a perfect God. Obey the law and you can maintain the relationship. Grace came through Jesus Christ and abolished the contract, fulfilled the contract, and said, you can be in this relationship with the Father by believing in Jesus. And when that happens, this is so important for us as believers, when you believe in Jesus, you receive the Spirit of Jesus. It is a miracle. It is a miraculous, powerful transformation. It is not try to be a good Christian in your flesh with the name Jesus laid on you. It is a transformation of your life. And if you try, you will fail. But if Christ moves through you, keep in step with the Spirit, you will operate in faithfulness to the Father because Christ is in you. The hope of glory. You follow me? So you can't do it. Don't go to God and be like, God, just help me to do it just go to god and say jesus can do this don't help me to do it jesus do it jesus the bible says in john chapter uh, 14 no 12 one of the chapters in john he says it 16 sorry that the holy spirit declares to me those things that are christ's his his role his purpose of being on earth is that when justin is not patient justin doesn't have to go to god and say god make me more patient Justin has to go to God and say, Jesus is patient, let him work out of me. That's it. It's not help me, help me, help me. It's Jesus move. Jesus move. Because it is a transformational miracle thing. And if it's not, then the gospels are a crock and Jesus came and preached stuff that was never going to happen. Because he said, you have to be more perfect than the Pharisees. He said, you have to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect in Matthew 5.48. If that's the case, it better be a transformation of Jesus in me or I'm going to fall short. You get that? So as a great high priest, here's what Jesus did. Israel was set up always under the understanding of grace because God should have never had a relationship with fallen man. When Adam and Eve sinned, God should, could have and, and under justice should have destroyed the human race and started over. And he did with Noah, except he found one righteous man. Right? One guy who feared God. So what happens is God sets this relationship up with Israel under grace and says, I'm going to have a tabernacle with you. I'm going to set up a high priest. As your high priest goes, so goes your nation. Follow that. So when Aaron was the high priest, God didn't look at all the little... uh, Danites that were running around and all the uh, Judah and all the Manasseh. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't tribe by tribe, person by person. God looked at Israel as how was the high priest. On the Day of Atonement, what did He have to do? Go in before the most holy place and offer a sacrifice for the sin of the people so that the nation could be in a relationship with God. Jesus, our high priest, as it goes with Jesus, so it goes with us. Do you get that? It's done. It is a finished, completed, forever, never to be changed, never to be altered, never to be different situation. Because as Jesus is and was and will always be, so it is for you and me. That's how important high priest is. You don't ever have to make a sacrifice for yourself. You don't ever have to make some penance for your sins. Jesus did it once and for all. So every day for the rest of eternity, no matter what, the bride of Christ is seated in heavenly places, justified before the Father because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's significant. That high priest situation is so significant because actually the temple was in heaven before it was on earth. And so it goes in verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So when you fail, when I fail, we don't have to go back and try to make amends for the failure to get back to favor with God. What we have to do in that failure is say, Jesus, you know this weakness. Overcome it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Transform me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Push me back into where I'm supposed to be. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a situation as New Covenant grace-filled believers radically... This message of grace is amazing and it only gets more amazing. So just keep searching it out. We have a situation where we have confidence and boldness. Actually, the Greek word is freedom. The Greek word is freedom. You get to go to the judge of all the earth. The judge, the creator, the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand, the one who sees it all, knows it all, has every piece of dirt on you and everybody else. You can boldly approach that throne because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Which means you don't come up there knocking your knees together. In fact, if you come groveling to the throne of grace, you are insulting jesus christ understand that he's a great high priest who has forever made propitiation which means payment for your sin and debt and everything negative against you so you have a father standing there at the throne of grace going i'm here to help and when you come groveling up to that throne and you're like well i know i I don't really deserve it it's like but my son paid for that so we don't trample underfoot the son of god and consider his grace in vain we go boldly and say, because of Jesus, God, which is not to get too big in our own drawers. You know, like we think we mighty men going to go up to God. So we have, as humans, we struggle because there are times when we get too buddy-buddy to God. We do. It's just a tendency we have because of relationship, the way things work, it's kind of like, God's my buddy, God's my brother, God's my, you know, Jesus is my brother, Jesus is my friend, Jesus is my, he's this person. And, and we get into this kind of situation, and then there are moments when the Father steps in, and Jesus steps in, and he says, don't forget, I still hold the universe in the palm of my hand. Don't forget that I am so big, and then I am so little. Because think about this, one of the coolest things about what Don brought up, the One of the wonders of the human cell. Inside your cells exist components, almost like a, like, a, like a universe inside of a cell, which takes a microscope to see. Inside of that, there's an organism called a bacterial flagellum that looks like the mouse you use on your computer, except it has a tail that turns and spins. The tail that comes out of the bacterial flagellum and spins actually gives it propulsion through your cells to complete the works that God has designed it for as this little mouse creature. There's multiple of them in your cell. As they go around and they, they, they perform these functions, well, scientists have discovered there are 40 components to the black bacterial flagellum that without one of them, it could not do what it's supposed to do. With 39 components, the cell would not exist. It needs all 40 simultaneous at the same time to complete its task they're in your cell. There's like these little men that they look like men. They actually like the way they move on, their, on your DNA strip. They actually like move like this and they go down these strips. It's like they're carrying information. What? And if you've ever seen Louis Giglio's laminin video, you know, it's just like that'll, that'll blow you away. Like there's these cross shapes, chromosomes, protein molecules inside your cells shaped like a cross to hold you together so you don't just pfft, disintegrate. I mean that's he's just he's 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 down there in this like place and he's beyond everything we could ever imagine. Right? So here's this here's the thing. If you get to buddy buddy with God, there's no condemnation. He wants you drawing near to his chest, okay? If you cross a line, he's so faithful to kindly bring you back to an understanding of who he is. And so don't be afraid to draw near to God because you're afraid that you might think Him too close to you. He wants to be close to you. That's why Jesus died. So you need to err on the side of being close to the Father. Don't err on the side of, He's so holy, He's out there, and I'll try to be so good for Him. No, that's wrong. You need to draw near to Him. Dwell with Him. Abide in Him. Be like Mary who's at His feet, just listening to what He has to say. She chooses the best thing, right? And in the process, if you mess up, He's just going to say, Oh, I'm God. And in that moment, you'll be humbled. But that humility will draw you closer to Him. It won't push you away. It won't condemn you. So we have this great-eyed priest that we need to go boldly to this throne. So it says in in Hebrews 5.1, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. How powerful of a statement is that for Jesus? He deals gently with the ignorant and wayward? since he himself is beset with weakness. He's talking about that high priest. You know, the high priest of the men. So, that was the purpose of the high priest of men, and that's what Jesus is now fulfilling. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And that, he's referring to the high priest who was like Aaron in the Aaronic process. Verse 4, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Here's the deal about being a high priest. You don't... don't, uh, volunteer for the position. It wasn't like, well, we got all of Israel, we've got 12 tribes. Who wants to be a high priest? That's not how it works. Because God is a sovereign God with a with a plan and a purpose, and he set forth and said, "Aaron, you're going to be the high priest. Levites, you're going to be the, you're going to be the priests before me." God sets these things up. That's why the Bible says, "Many are called, but few are chosen." Because God is establishing and choosing. And putting us in the positions that we need to be put put in. And Jesus himself was what? Sent by the Father to become a propitiation for our sins. He was chosen. When? Before the foundation of the world. Father always knew that he was going to send his son Jesus. And so he sent him down here. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. But he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So I want to talk to you about grace and fear. The fear of the Lord that we have to maintain because that's a part of our journey, right? But we have to walk in grace. And so in this tension, which is similar to, you know, truth and love. There's a tension that exists between truth and love. You can't just... Love with affection and affection and affection and not display truth. Because sometimes loving is truthful and sometimes the truth is a difficult pill to swallow that still is loving. And so grace and the fear of God, they they are intermixed. And I want to talk to you about how they're intermixed. So we know that that old covenant high priest was set up. As the high priest went, so went the nation. He was chosen by God. He did not volunteer. He had a responsibility to link God to man. That's the old covenant high priest in Israel. He had a responsibility to link God and man. So that old covenant fear of God was all about honoring a contract. God said, here's the law. Keep the law and you shall be my people. Disobey the law and you'll suffer the consequences. So keeping the contract was an element of the fear of God in the Old Testament. Okay? The New Covenant fear of God is very different. So the New Covenant fear of God, Psalm 111.10 is what Don quoted. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It also is quoted in uh, in the book of Proverbs. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So I want to walk you down a path. What does that mean? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So here's how it looks... As I, as I looked at it. In, in Hebrews 5, verse 7, it says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Sounds a lot like Romans 8, doesn't it? When you don't know what to pray and the Spirit groans Himself through you. Sounds like Jesus was right in the middle of that with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. Who was able to save Jesus from death? That's right, God, (laughs) the Father. He was heard, why was He heard? What does it say? Because of His Godly 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 fear. So, is there anyone who can love and fear God perfectly at the same time? Yes, Jesus Christ. Not us. But it's Jesus Christ who fulfilled what? He fulfilled the law. He fulfills the fear of God in our lives. You understand that? His manifestation in your life means your fear of God as you walk and keep in step with the Spirit is the correct fear of God. So if the, be, if the, if, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom... Let's talk about where did where does wisdom start, right? So, in Proverbs 4:12, it says wisdom is the principal thing. So, wisdom is the principal thing. Fear the Lord's beginning of wisdom, wisdom is the principal thing. Then in John 6:44, Jesus says this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So, if you are going to say I need wisdom in my life, it would be the way you should live. The, the the governance of what the information is under which you should live, the truth, and what that life looks like. That's, that's wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. The way, the truth, and the life is wisdom. That's wisdom. If He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, then you follow Jesus, guess what? You're walking in wisdom. Right? He says, when you ask for wisdom, what are you asking for? You're asking for the manifestation of Jesus in your life. So, in John chapter 14, verse 21... Jesus says, whoever loves me will keep my commands and will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. That's what Jesus said. He said, this is how we come close. We come close because you obey, and as you obey, I manifest myself to you. So here's the thing, you can know about Jesus and never walk in Jesus. Because you can know a lot of information about someone, and you can read your Bible, and you can pray, and you can study, but that doesn't mean the life of Jesus is manifesting in your life. That's called the revelation. That's revelatory understanding. It's when Christ actually does stuff in you, and you're not the same anymore. It's why I've stopped lying. It's why I've stopped cursing. It's why I've stopped the, the things that I don't do in my life anymore. It wasn't because I set out on a five-step process to not curse anymore. Jesus manifests Himself in me and says, you don't have any reasons to, to curse. And He's right. And He just manifests that stuff in us. So we transform as Jesus manifests Himself. What then? Okay, so that's wisdom. Jesus manifesting us him to us, manifesting Himself to us. Thank you, Lord. That's wisdom. Why? Because He's manifesting the way, the truth, and the life in your life. You get it? So if that's happening... What is then the obedience he talks about? John 14, 1 says, Believe in God, and believe also in me. That's what he said. Here's here's the the great, amazing thing about drawing near to God. Believe in Jesus. That's how simple he made it. That's why Jesus looked up to the Father and said, Father, I thank you that you've made this wise, that, that you've made this simple so that even children can understand, but you've concealed it from the wise and the learned. Because all it is, is He's saying, believe in Me. Believe in what's finished. Believe in what's done. So the wisdom that we have, this obedience that causes us to have the manifestation of Jesus, is believing in Him. John one says this, Jesus is the Word. Does it not say that? The Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh, and the, or the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's John 1.14 where He says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He's the Word. So everything we, we, we gain from this, what are we gaining? We're gaining Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus. So if He's manifesting Himself to us, He's manifesting the Word in us. Psalm 119, it says, How does a young man keep his way pure? By hiding the Word of God in his heart. That he might not depart from it. When God puts the Word in your heart, You transform. Why? Because He's actually placing Jesus in your heart. Which is what? The Spirit of Christ. Alive in us. He's the hope of glory, right? So, if that's the case, John 6, 29 says this, The work of God is this. Believe in the one He sent. I'm not making it up. You guys can go back and read these things. Jesus was always saying, he said this as he started his ministry, Repent, for the kingdom of God is here, believe in me. It wasn't, repent, the kingdom of God is near, and here are the 78 ways that you can keep the new covenant. He simply said, believe in me. And the people that he rebuked were the ones that did not believe in him. He didn't rebuke his dis- disciples when they were just walking along and messing up and arguing about who's the greatest. There wasn't a rebuke for that, mis- those mistakes. The rebukes that got, the disciples got was when they didn't believe them. They're just like, I don't know what we're going to do about the storm. Because oh, they didn't believe the person sleeping in the front of the boat had the power over the wind and the waves. And he said, huh, how long will I be with this unbelieving people? You have little faith. Little faith. He was saying, believe in me. They should have been sleeping next to him, just riding the waves, you know, like, I'm, Jesus is good. You know, we're, we're going to be fine. But I understand they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, so there was still some work that had to be done. And so if you think about this, we're considering Jesus. That's where Hebrews 1 starts. It says, he speaks to us. Consider Him. Chapter 2 says, consider Him. Chapter 3 says, you got to get into His rest. Consider Jesus. Chapter 4 says, the Word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Who are they talking That's Jesus. He's living. He's active. He's alive right now. I know because He's in me, making me feel like electricity is going off in my body. He's alive here this morning. He's alive in worship. He's alive in you guys. I can sense His presence. I know when Jesus is around. He's living and active. He's sharp. What is wisdom? It's sharp. They say, well, that kid's pretty sharp. What are they saying? He's pretty wise. Right? So the living word is sharp. It's active. That's Hebrews chapter 4. He's saying it's a two-edged sword. By the way, he's the high priest. You never have to do another sacrifice for your sin or penance or anything. You are made perfect in the sight of God under the blood of Jesus Christ. So because of his reverence, because of his fear, he is powerful. He's active. His grace has everything to do with holiness. That's where I'm going with this. Because people in the church are afraid of the grace of Jesus Christ because they want to control how holy people should be. And that's missing the mark by a long shot. God's grace is always about His holiness. And if, I want you to think about it from, from the perspective of Moses, and I've talked to you about this passage before, but in Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 18, Moses is given instructions from God. Those instructions come 38 years after the children of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness. The first time Moses went to God and said, the people are complaining about water, God said, strike the rock at Horeb. And there's a phrase in there which is Aleph Tav in the Hebrew that actually lands right before the word rock in that verse in Exodus, which means strike Jesus and water will flow. It was a picture of the cross because Jesus was struck so that living water would flow, okay? So Moses did it. He struck the rock. They had the water. They walked for 38 years. They're coming to the end of this time, and the people cry out, Again, murmuring against Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron do the right thing. They go to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And they fall on their faces. And they say, God, these people are murmuring and muttering. What can we do? God says very clearly to them, say to the rock. And actually, this time, the word in Hebrew is actually cliff. Which meant to speak to it, they had to look up. So speak to the rock. And it will give forth abundant water for the people and their livestock. The first time was just people. This time it's an overabundance that's going to come out. The first staff that Moses used, he used the rod of judgment, which was his staff when he came out of Exodus. His staff, which he turned the Nile into blood, which he brought the frogs, which he brought the gnats, which he brought the death, the pestilence, that came through Moses' staff, if you remember that. That was the first time he struck the rod. The second time the father says this, take the the staff that is before me. The staff that's before God is Aaron's staff, the high priest. The high priest's staff, which what? It budded, right? With leaves and an almond. It had fruit. So this staff is a representation of grace. It's a representation of life. Moses' first staff is a representation of law and death. Aaron's staff is a representation of life and grace. Moses struck the rock twice with a rod of life. That's like preachers who condemn their flocks with the Bible. It's the same thing. If you're striking the rock, how we do it today is we condemn people who follow Jesus and we use the Word of God to do it. Because if you believe like I believe, Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Which means I can't condemn anybody, and I especially can't do it with this staff of life. Because the Bible says when the body of Christ is gathered together, it's for the exhortation, encouragement, upbuilding, and lifting of one another. Because we need to be lifted up. We got the devil and the enemies in the world trying to push us down. We don't need the church pushing us down. Right? And you don't know who's in what situation and where God is in that situation and how quick that situation can ch- change. You don't know, we don't know. So we believe in the one who can change it in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. And so, this understanding then of of this staff in Numbers chapter 20, when Moses goes and strikes this rock, God says this in, in Numbers chapter 20, I think it's important to draw it out, because I was saying grace has to do with holiness. He struck it, the Lord says to Moses and to Aaron, Because you did not believe in me. That's why Moses struck the rock. To uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. And through them he showed himself holy. How God shows himself holy is through grace. So Moses screwed up and hit the rock. Did God turn around and be like, you don't get no water? Not at all. Moses didn't follow the instructions worth beans, and God poured out more water than they could handle. That's grace. It's an abundance, an overabundance, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Moses' sin was he didn't believe in God. See, Moses was on his face, he heard the instruction, he got up and he puffed up. When he got up and puffed up, he went out before the people and said, Should we give you some water? Which was, he was taking it in his own hands. He wasn't honoring the Lord as holy. See, real grace honors the Lord as holy. False grace seeks self-indulgence. If you walk around and say, well, the grace of Jesus covers me, but I can do whatever I want, you've missed grace completely. 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 It's horrible that you would even label it as grace, because God's grace has nothing to do with your self-indulgence. It has everything to do with His holiness and His kindness and His goodness toward us, because of Jesus Christ. Real grace will drive you to your knees at the foot of Jesus over and over and over and over. And then when you get up, more grace is going to pour out on you and more worship and more reverence for the one who gave you this grace is going to come out of you. And so in, it, I draw that out because the, the church is afraid of grace because they're afraid that if we really, really get a hold of what grace means then people are just going to be wild and crazy and do whatever they want to do and then you're going to have an unruly body of believers and that is farthest thing you could ever have from the truth. A body of people who really soak in Jesus, and His grace, will mature rapidly. They will mature. They will, we will draw into a place where the, the, oh, the opening of heaven, what Dave prophesied this morning, heaven will open. Because God is looking at us saying, this one wants to know me. Here, I love to reveal my secrets. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings for that matter to be found out, Proverbs 25.2. He's saying He likes to hide secret things, but He loves for us to find them. So as we mature, He wants to open this stuff up to us and grow us in this grace. So in, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, so grace has to do with holiness. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, the Bible says, Purify yourselves, cleanse yourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit, and draw near to God in holiness. So if you read 2 Corinthians 7 1, you can think to yourself, Okay, are we back under the under how can I how can I cleanse myself and and walk in this holiness to the completion of the fear of God? But he said it in 2 Corinthians 6 at the very end, he said, Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? For what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, which he was prophesying after Jesus says the lord almighty and he's, then then the scripture comes since we have these promises beloved let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of god so here's what here's what's being said you're now sons and daughters of the king of glory you're family you're accepted you're not a sinner you're not a stained saint. You are clean, cleansed, pure, justified, like you've never sinned. See, you gotta, you got to meditate on this sometime. and just We have to meditate on the fact that we sit before a God who says, you look like you've never sinned one time, because you look like Jesus. You're covered in His blood. So this promise you have, I dwell in you, because... You're like you've never sinned before. That's what he's saying. He's like, I'm in there. You're my son. You're my daughter. You don't look sinful. You look perfect. And I love you. And I love spending time with you. And I want to be with you. And he says, so therefore, you have all of that. Cleanse yourself. You know what that word means? It means, it literally means to wash with water. And in Hebrew in Ephesians 5:26 the Bible talks about the bride of Christ. How does the bride of Christ become without stain or wrinkle? Washed in the water of the word. Why does Romans 12:1 and 2 say daily renew your mind? It's the word of God, which is what? The wisdom of God, which is what? The fear of God. You follow me? So all of this is rooted back to the very foundation of who Jesus is. So it's like, how am I going to cleanse myself and make myself pure? Read your Bible. Sit in the presence of of Jesus Christ who dwells in you. He's not gone anywhere. He'll never leave you and never forsake you. No matter how screwed up you feel in that moment, He's nowhere but closer to you in that moment. That's where He is. My oh, fear feels so far away. I don't care how he feels. He's closer in that moment than you can even imagine. Press in to him and you're being purified. Because the lies of the enemy and the lies of this world will bombard the believers in Jesus Christ to try to convince them otherwise. Well, you're not as clean as, as you might think before God you're not as holy, you're, you know, and I'm not saying this because you're going to be puffed up. I'm saying you have to remind yourself of what God says about you. I have to remind myself of what God says about me and say, that's the truth. That's a lie. I'm not operating under that lie. I'm operating under the truth. That's so why he says, put on the armor of God. Why would he give us armor if we didn't have to put it on? Part of it he's already given. Part of it you're already wearing. We're wearing a breastplate of righteousness because Christ, we abide in the vine. Right? But he says, put on the shield of faith. That means exercise your faith every day. And what's my faith? Jesus, I believe in you. And I believe these words, what you said, are true for me. And in that, you're being purified. And I will challenge anyone, anyone on the face of the earth, to actually get in their scriptures on a daily basis and tell me God's principles don't work in their life. To actually apply this word on a daily basis and come back and say, well, I tried it faithfully and it, it just didn't it didn't pan out. God's principles are so true and so right and so faithful, they work for people who don't believe in Jesus. Do you know that? People that don't even, not even believe in Jesus one ounce. Pro, I'll prove it to you. Cornelius? Cornelius wasn't a follower of Yeshua. But the principle is, If you give, it will be given back to you. Jesus said it. So what happened? Cornelius gives up alms. He 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 he fears God. He doesn't believe in Jesus one ounce. And what does the Father do? He says, Peter, go to Cornelius' house. Salvation's coming to his house today. He gave and gave and gave. And guess what? He got. See, the principles of God's kingdom are so true that unbelievers can, 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 can experience the goodness of God. That's why the Bible says, taste and see that he is good. Rain falls on the righteous and the, and the unrighteous. Just and the unjust. You know, and if you in your heart don't want blessings for somebody, that's the furthest thing you can have from the heart of God. Because God wants to pour out blessings on the just and the unjust. He wants us to love our enemies. See, in the old covenant or the contract, you could hate your enemy. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. In the new contract with Jesus, love your enemies, pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Right in the old contract, it was don't commit adultery. In the new contract, don't even look on a woman with adult with, with lust in your eyes, on a man with lust in your eyes. So Jesus didn't lighten lighten it. He just made it so impossible that it takes Him to fulfill it. Right, that's what it is. Amen. And we got the Spirit of Christ that's within us. That's right. Never. So you can't be saved by grace and then operate under the flesh and get, get holy into Christ. You have to be saved by grace, operate under grace, and continue in grace so that you hold fast to the confession that He's given you so that you can walk in wisdom and the fear of the Lord and enjoy the pleasures of the Lord in His presence forevermore. That's what He said. Did He not? And, I, you know, and one last thing. When the disciples were going to have their feet washed by Jesus, why was it important that He washed their feet? Because he gave us a picture that although they dwelled with him on a regular basis, he had already spoken over them, they would be clean. Do you remember that? Peter said, no, you can't wash me, Lord. And he says to him, Peter, if I don't wash you, then you have no part in me. Peter said, well, not my feet only then, God, just do the whole thing. But Jesus' response is very profound because he says, Peter, you're already clean. Peter, you're already clean. What did that mean? Jesus was the only one who could proclaim anybody clean. He proclaimed Peter's cleanness, but he said, I have to wash your feet, because your feet get dirty every day. You see, we as Christians are pure and spotless before the the Father. However, we stumble and we fall. And in those stumbles and those falls, and those misbeliefs and those wrong beliefs and those lies we believe, That's dirtying our feet on a daily basis. And what we need is Jesus to wash our feet on a daily basis by the washing of the water of the Word. So it's not about a ritualistic cleaning thing. It's just the fact that this is a dirty world. And when we trudge around in it, our feet will get a little bit dirty. But every day we have the hope of grace, the grace of Jesus Christ that says, believe this, get to this, this is your rock. And when we do... We're clean. And we can believe in our own cleanness. He already sees us clean. No matter if your feet are dirty here today or not, you've come in with some sin, some issues, you're struggling, Jesus isn't standing over you saying, you bad, bad person. He's saying, be washed. Be washed. Be clean. Come out of that. Come out of it because I have so much more for you. I've got got the adventure of a lifetime for you to follow and walk in. Amen? Bill? He also says that that's an example in serving. So, Washed and well, on a daily basis. We are also telling us to also do that for one another in encouragement, prophesying, and holding each other up Amen. No matter how you we feel. Amen. What a good word.